PTSD. Yeah, usually with uh, Norman G, but Norman has to work a little bit late, so we'll have another podcast immediately after this. But I have a wonderful guest, two wonderful guests, Christine Duran and Jim So I'm sort of, in, uh, I'm used to the heat, but uh, yeah, it is. I mean, it's uh, usually we get this. Set, usually it's a heat wave in October. Yeah, in right. San Francisco. So, well, sneak preview. How bad was it here? Here in the Bay Area? I like right here in Oakland, where you are. Um, not that bad. And of course, I'm next to the water, so it's uh, pretty. It's pretty good. I mean, it's always a little bit better. I mean, the breeze is in San Francisco, but uh, here, in in the evening, it can be a bit rough. Okay. Because. Uh, it's just, you know, it gets real nice and, and sticky and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah. My parents moved to the D.C. area like 20 years ago, and uh-huh. I, we stayed out there for one summer. And I would go outside at 2 in the morning. It would be just as hot as it was at 2 in the afternoon, plus all humid. And I was just like, why does anyone live here? <laughs> they just all move someplace more temperate. But that's what happens when you grow up here. You, New York is even worse. I mean, you know, the, I mean, the summers are really, and of course you have those big buildings. So, you know, it's just the, the air just sort of. It's really sticky, and uh, and of course the winters are absolutely horrible. So that's why I'm. Oh, we made the right choice. But <laughs> <laughs> you two are a married couple. You both are writers. Uh, I think both you direct too, right? No, I don't direct. No, you've never directed before. Well, actually, I used to direct the uh-huh. I, the radio show that we met on, which was at KLX, the uh-huh. UC Berkeley radio station, and we we actually met doing a radio drama. A regular radio drama show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I know you guys because uh, you guys were affiliated with EastEnders uh, before it, you know, EastEnders folded, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's how I've uh, connected with you guys. But tell me how you guys met. Tell me a love story. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, I'm trying to. It was just through Calix because that's a, um, the UC Berkeley radio station, but it's also a community station. Mm-hmm. So. We just sort of knew each other around, and we'd been to some parties, and I remembered that I went to one party, and it was a James Bond party, and Gene came dressed as the quintessential James Bond victim. <laughs> I could see he was Bond. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, was, I went to the victim. I went to the victim route with the holes all over my shirt, like an oh, arrow sticking out of yeah. me. <laughs> the guy who just gets I remember you were, And you pointed out to me all the, the different things, like, this is where a spear gun went through, <laughs> and this is where I was shot this way, and that's, that's all these. That's a but then, it, and then we had the well. Then this was right around the time of the '89 earthquake. Wow! So Gene worked at the news department mm-hmm. at Calix, and they happened to be the only news department that didn't lose their transmitter or whatever. So they were talking directly to nation uh-huh. or national news because none of the bigger stations could get through. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you remember that time, Gene? It was. It was interesting. CNN called up. They wanted to have somebody describe what it was like in the Bay Area. So I got on and I gave a little report. Yeah, and then they called back, and so I was like, Gene, it's CNN on the line for you. And I was like, oh, <laughs> again. <laughs> hey, big shot. Big shot. Yeah. Man, that is fantastic. But that was before we actually went out, but that was so I just knew him for a while then, and then we then we worked on the same. Yes, did you have another? No, yeah, I, I was going to kind of fit that in there. Yeah, we were doing this uh, radio drama called Ticket to Adventure, where uh, this was one of the uh, leads and they would go around the world uh, on adventures, but also giving away tickets to local events. And uh, yeah, it was this one was the brainchild of Carl Fleischman, who's another local musician. He's a teacher, mm. 
and um, and he had this idea that to do an, like an old adventure serial. Oh, wow. So we did that, and every time we got a new person, mm-hmm. we would have them be the announcer because that was the easiest role. Yeah. So get, and we'd never had time to rehearse. Radio theater? Yeah. Oh, fantastic, yeah. But it was we, like in the 30s and all that stuff. Right. But we would, like, be like writing the show, uh-huh. you know, during the week. Like, I remember sitting on the BART train on my way to my regular job, like, trying to write a script for the show. So uh-huh. because we had to write a new show every week and we were all doing it around our day jobs, we never had time to rehearse. Mm-hmm. So... The day, th- so then Gene came to the station as a student, you know, to volunteer, and he was interested in being in this, and he was supposed to play the announcer because it was his first time, and so we just had a new script, and we had no rehearsal. We were just kind of like acting cold on the air like we did every week, and at the last second, the guy who was supposed to play the pirate suddenly decided he didn't want to play the pirate. He just wanted to be the announcer, so we had no choice but to throw this completely untested person who was just supposed to do the boring announcer role into the pirate uh, role. Okay, I guess I can do that. And just see how he did. <laughs> yeah. And then this is what we got. I, of course, have to put on the pirate voice and a fine job with a bit of an accent. How fun. So we were all very impressed. Yeah. And then you guys, um, I mean, when did when things get serious between the two of you? Um, I don't, <laughs> no, I don't remember. Working, it, was, it was around 1990. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, I think it was 20 years, 30 years? No, 20, 27, 27 yeah. years. I mean, that, hey, that is fantastic. I mean, considering how um, everyone's, I read in the newspapers about uh, the divorce rate and how tough it is for people to stay together or whatever. Do you think the theater or just the arts has uh, kept you two uh, together? Yeah, it definitely helps to have it that we know we know what it's like, and especially when we get really obsessed with a project and we're gone nights at night after night, or we have to you know break the weekend up with, as you were saying, with QQs and tech and all that. Every person understands. Yeah, I mean, th- I think it does make it easier to have shared interests, definitely. And um, yeah, and then like I mean, I, what I don't understand, and I know a number of people who do this. People who have kids who are in shows, and I feel so bad for the spouse, you know, who's at at home with the kids by themselves for like endless nights while the person's off at rehearsal. But when Jean's off at rehearsal, you know, I have a bunch of my other theater things I can work on or whatever, and it's it doesn't it's not as bothersome to me I think as it would be if yeah if, if you like didn't if you weren't into it yourself I mean right you'd be exactly. like why are you spending so much time on this yeah it sounds like you two have a very balanced life like I mean like uh, you have your own projects and Gene has his own projects or whatever and I think that it's it's helpful in a relationship to have a an individual um, life and you're not just waiting home for Gene and Gene's not just waiting home for you and, and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I guess I feel like most people I know are like that. I mean, yeah, yeah. What about you, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am. I'm still a swinging bachelor. So, as a matter of fact, you had mentioned we were talking before we went on the air. I've had girlfriends and other in, in past relationships, and they get very frustrated with me as an actor. It's like, my God, you've been, you know, what do you mean you're you're coming home at 12 midnight? And I'm like, well, sweetheart, it's QQ and right. all of this stuff, and even when I'm doing tech. It's like, are you making any money, and why are you doing it? And it's hard to explain to someone who's not in theater why theater is so important. And, you know, mm-hmm. Norman and I were talking about how theater, like Norman, he works for um, Each One Reach One, which reaches out to um, kids from the 
ghetto, uh, troubled youth center, or whatever, and it's really enriching their lives, yeah. going through their issues through theater, Correct. like improvisation and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, there there have been a lot of studies about how much kids get from working in theater, and even kids who are like um, have autism spectrum disorder, they're, they, that just learning to act a part can really teach them about reading emotional cues and how other people think, but for some reason it's not very respected. <laughs> I mean, even that the woman who wrote that Tiger Mom book, like one of her rules was that her kids could not be in the theater, it could not be in the school right, play, exactly. and I thought that's terrible. They actually learned so much from doing yeah. that. I mean, liberal arts is really looked down upon when, uh, as far as parents, or at least parents who want their kids to, hey, I want you to be a doctor, you know, do something right. productive. And, and I mean, it's great to be money. a doctor, but that, that doesn't mean that other things don't have value. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were talking uh, before we got on the mics about politics, and I really believe there's such a, um, there's such a division uh, between liberals and, and uh, conservatives and what have you. One of the things about theater, I get to step in someone else's shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I'm not gay, but I've stepped into, you know, I, I played a role that is gay. As a matter of fact, <laughs> one thing that also connects to both of us, I was a partner of yours, Jean, you know, in, in one sh- production, and also I was your husband. That's right. In production. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing that sort of ties oh, all together. It's amazing. <laughs> but it is amazing. It's, it's, I mean, I would recommend anyone to get into liberal arts, especially children, because if you want your child to, to to break out of the his or her shell and also learn about other cultures, what better way than to step into another character where you can actually understand what another person goes through? Yeah, and, and, and kids just love the art so much. Yeah. Um, there was actually just, I wish I could remember the name of it, there, there was just a piece at the Marsh recently about a, a man who was he became a volunteer teacher, mm-hmm. was an actor, with underserved kids, and he helped them put together short films, and they showed one of the films, and it was just so adorable, and you just, in the kids, they came up with all that stuff themselves, yeah. and if they just get a chance to do it, and they, and you know, someone to help them, because I think, you know, you're not just, even though you may have watched a lot of films, actually producing a show, or producing a short film, or something like that, you do need a little bit of guidance, you know, the first time, so. Yeah, and that's something that I think the both of you have some, um, some experience in, like, I've been an actor, I've been a, I've done, I, I'm looking at Pride Open where I, I wrote the music uh, for uh, that, but really, I've never, I don't know the business part of it, the producing part of it. Do you have any experience with that? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we, uh, some friends of ours, we, uh, we all came together to form uh, Bell Union, which is a little theater company. That's right. Putting on some shows. Yeah. I remember Lady Susan. That was right. a wonderful piece. Thank you. Oh, First thanks. Time working uh-huh. on the yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I remember, well, because our friend Daria Hutz, who works for Berkeley Rep now, she's one of the development people, and she's also acted with mm-hmm. Douglas Morrison. I think she's doing something with The Dark Room with Craig Caesar, who's just on Maybe the show recently. Yeah. 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 But now I... It's good to podcast together. That's right. It's, it's, it's like six degrees separating. If I meet an actor, an actor has met someone, right. met someone who has met me right. or a friend or whatever. So, well, she had the idea to form a company because you know she wanted to join producing her own shows, and mm-hmm. um, so I joined as, as a designer, and it's. It's pretty, I didn't realize how expensive it was, I have to say, just to do even a little tiny show in a yeah. little black box. Yeah. Um, and I listened to one of your earlier podcasts where you were talking about equity and whether it's more expensive to work on a show with an equity actor. That's right, Norman was talking yeah, about Yeah, and my experience is, is actually that it is, but it, it kind of depends because 
you know, there are certain rules you have to follow, and one of the rules has to do with insurance. So if you're really doing, like, a gorilla kind of show that's as bare bones as possible, you may be able to get away without having insurance. But if you're working with equity, you can't cut corners like that. Right. So it is something to be aware of. And just things like, just today I was returning some costumes to ACT Rental from, I just did the Elephant Man at Altarina Playhouse. Oh, right on. Yeah, and, um, and that's something I think people don't, Realize, especially you know, if you now can what, get. What, I'm sorry. What did you do? Yeah. Oh, I designed the costumes for okay, the show. Got it. So I was just returning some of them to one of the rental houses at ACT, and you have to. You. It's not only just the costume rental, but you have to dry clean everything. Oh, wow. And that's not something that everyone. Like, if you're first doing a show, would you really be thinking about things like insurance and dry cleaning? Right. But that's why it costs so much. Getting back to, to equity, I think Norman's uh, point was, if you're going to, you know, he was talking about there are theater companies that sometimes will audition equity actors, and why even bother if you don't have the money for it? But I understand what you're saying. I mean, there's so many other things that, that go into it. And, of course, he's equity actor, and I'm not equity, and I've sometimes have been fortunate, but sometimes profited from not being equity because I get cast more <laughs> because everyone's looking towards uh, their bottom line, and it's cheaper if I can get someone, it's sort of like free agency and um, in sports. If you can get, if you can get right. a great talent cheaper, then, you know, you go for it, which, is, which sucks if, if you are equity. Do you think that equity, I mean, as an actor, is sometimes a detriment? Oh, well, I mean, I, I don't do – do you have a comment about that? Because I don't do as much acting. It just have you ever thought about being an equity? It doesn't seem like this is the right city for it. Yeah, I hear you. It's more important than New York or L.A., and then, you know – Strong unions are great, and protecting the actor is awesome, but it just doesn't seem like in the Bay Area, none of us can make enough money to live. I mean, I don't know anybody who's making enough money acting to live, really. I don't yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right, and I've noticed a lot of actors, they'll, let's say they'll be in the Bay Area, they'll work up their resume and build up their resume as a non-equity, and then they'll go yeah. to L.A. or New York yeah. because they have now a, a repertoire or whatever, solid resume, and then they may, you know, go to an equity house. I, I've, I've heard that before. We do know a few people who, who, like, relocated to L.A. Um, actually, one of them that was in uh, in the UC Berkeley drama department where Gene studied, um, I just saw his name in the credits of a TV show. Oh, I'm like, oh, great. He's still, he was, he, direct, he directed a show that I was in that mm-hmm. was a student show, and he was assistant director on a TV show, and then just coincidentally, like, a week after that, he Facebook friended me. <laughs> That's so funny. I was just thinking about you. He remembers you. See there? Yeah. yeah well, having a weird last name helps. Mm-hmm. Um, there, was another, there was another money saver that I was remembering as being a, producing a show. We were doing a version of La Ronde by this. Um, oh, Arthur Schnitzler. Yeah, and um, we there was a, there's a famous translation that's but it's expensive uh, to use and it's owned by Samuel French and luckily uh, Dario. Uh, found an exciting new translation by a professor at UCLA who was thrilled to have us put it on, and so we used his translation, and uh, just by putting a casting list in Callboard or Bay, Theater Bay Area, um, Samuel French in New York noticed that we were doing La Ronde and gave us a polite letter saying, oh, by the way, you owe us... Not sure it was that polite. Oh, you owe us money, and we're like, sorry, actually, it's a new translation by somebody else. I was going to ask about that because that's a thing that I don't know. It's like, well, if I want to produce, I don't know, let's say a Tennessee Williams piece, mm-hmm. and I say, well, 
Forget about getting royalties or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just go ahead and do it. I don't know if we'll find out, but I guess they do find out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was shocked because this was our first show, so we were not known. We didn't have any advertisements or anything. They must have just been reading the audition listings. I'm sure they have someone at the end of the day to do that. And yeah. if someday, if we're ever represented by Samuel French, I hope they will continue to do that for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, the rule is that, the, the copyright rule is that if it was printed before 1923, it's uh-huh. public domain. So I have heard stories about people putting on Shakespeare and getting cease and desist letters. And that is just ignore right. that. Shakespeare. Right. Because oh, no. Shakespeare's in the public domain. I mean, maybe <laughs> if you're using somebody's footnote that came from some scholar, mm-hmm. you know, you can't just use that stuff without permission. But so ten, um, I guess Tennessee Williams would probably, and then there's a period between 1923 and I can't remember the ending date, but like 56 or something when the copyright laws changed, mm-hmm. where it's a wild card because there were rules about how they had to renew the copyright. So mm-hmm. those you have to go to like the Library of Congress website and try the to look up what happened. World War II, they at the time, Congress was trying to think about <laughs> something like that. Right. Because they'd be way too busy. Yeah, it was, I can't remember the, when the year is. It was after World War II, but they, they changed the copyright laws and then they changed them again. Yeah. I'm also thinking about HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee. So maybe with all the blackballing, black, I think that means in the right term. Right. 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 They said, let's look for copyright ways to get people to. Yeah, yeah. So maybe they're not worried just looking at people, but also at at artists. The uh, the artists and, and, uh, you know, written material, that sort of stuff. Um, I had heard um, there's, I work for Off Broadway West, and uh, one of the producers, Barbara Harder, had mentioned that it takes about minimum $15,000 to put together a production. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, we've done it for less, but not. Uh, I think ours tend to be more like 10000 But I remember when I first heard that. So the first show that we worked on, we had this wonderful business manager, Erin Harms, who now she moved and she works for um, Signature Theater in Arlington, mm-hmm. Virginia. So wow. she's, yeah. So, cool. she, so we really, we never recovered from that, honestly. <laughs> 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 she and her husband, um, actually, I'm sorry, they're not married. Um, or Mark Alano was our lighting designer. Like it was so great to have them as to have a permanent lighting designer and a permanent business person. I mean, having a business person is just fantastic. Somebody who would deal with like equity contracts and insurance and renting the venue, scheduling all that stuff. But I remember the I think the first budget was ten thousand or twelve thousand. I remember, and this is in two thousand one, two thousand two. I think two thousand one maybe. So I and the, I was stunned at that. I'm like, how could it be that much? But, you know, it was something like, it's, it's some of my numbers are a little out of date because I think 2000, that was last time I did it. But it's something like $3,000 to rent a theater. And then you have to get special insurance. That's like a short-term event insurance. And then, you you know, you want to pay your actors something. And then you have to have, like, costume rental. And if you're building rehearsal space yeah. is a big rehearsal one. Rehearsal space turned out to be a killer. Is that yeah. Right? yeah. And people just don't feel comfortable, like, doing it in a living room. It's a little less professional, you know. Yeah, and also it creates problems if, when you have to move it into the theater, like for Tech Week or whatever, because the spacing's wrong and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. I'm used to having your bathroom nook here, and what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> right. The blocking can get all real screwed up and that sort of stuff. And, but also building sets and uh, mm-hmm. the material for building sets if you're doing that. Yeah, I think we only one time did a show where we really. Oh no, you! I remember you. Were, actually, that's not true. I was going to say we only one time had a really full built set, but I do remember another time we did a show where you were cutting all, a window in a door with uh, yeah, yeah. like the night yeah. before the first preview or something. Right, we didn't have the right tools either. It was awkward. We 
we built we built it off site, and uh, my dad helped with that. And then we put it into a van and got it to the theater, and it couldn't fit down the stairwell oh. to the theater. I had stupidly forgotten to measure that, so we had to crowbar it apart in certain points, yeah. take it downstairs, and reconstruct it. And then, yeah, we realized we needed a hole in the door. I got a super cheap door from the Home Depot, yeah. and then uh, I didn't have, like, the proper kind of saw to just saw right through, so I just had to, like, punch holes until it looked like a <laughs> It looked fine. In the end, it looked fine. We covered up with tape, and it was all good, but um, it's hectic. It hectic night. Night. Wow. Hectic wow. Night. Yeah. I mean, and it's just like, we used to have a permanent set designer in our group, too, but that was something where it was a romantic couple, and then they broke up, and oh, so, no. unfortunately, <laughs> we lost the set designer. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Just stick around. Just <laughs> I've been in a couple of productions that way. As a matter of fact, uh, someone was uh, Facebooking me. Uh, we did, um, it was Debbie Does Dallas. I'm looking at the picture right there. Yeah. But actually, the performance the musical. Yeah, yeah, the musical. Yeah, well, not the film. <laughs> um, so the musical genius, format, yeah, I know. It was very, very artistic. It was one of those, uh, the actual company is Ray of Light Theater, who did oh, yeah. that for Oh, they're, yeah, they've done some great shows. Yeah, they've done some great shows and a subsidiary of that. It's one of those one and done where it's a production company only meant to do that one show and then it just yeah. disappears. So in any case, we're doing Bat Boy and uh, the leading actress had a boyfriend in the beginning of the process. Yeah. Dumped him, yeah. hooked up with the lead actor, and now they are married with a child. Oh, my. And they're doing very well. So uh, it's amazing how um, theater can, you know, show together a love and <laughs> yeah, show me. Exactly. Yeah. Was Debbie does? I mean, Debbie does Dallas is like a film or something, isn't it? Like, it's a was film. that sort of a guerrilla thing, or did yeah. they actually get rights to that? Uh, I believe they did. I mean, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I think they did. I yeah. mean, it was an actual musical. It was like a parody musical. I don't know. It's very Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. rather than. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> Although I did have to tell as a state because I was stage manager and I did let you tell somebody, hey, listen, you cannot jack off during the production. Put <laughs> <laughs> it back in your pants, please. Oh, man. Oh, fine. Yeah. Because as as um, people are listening to, you know, you talk about taking down a set and putting together a set and the money and all that stuff, people may wonder, my God, why do it? Why Why is theater important to you? As a writer, a performer, a producer, I think it's just it's just doable for me. Like, I I decided I wanted to write a supernatural horror play, and I knew like I'm not going to get this made as a film. Yeah. Yeah. Discovered new works. I believe uh, we did a reading. Oh, that's right. Oh yeah, yeah that yeah. was different. That was my zombie play. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah. I'm trying to make super, like, pop-relevant, you, you know. You can make anything about the supernatural, except for, well, I'll tell that story in a second. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that's all right. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to, like, nobody's going to buy my movie. I can't afford to make a movie, mm-hmm. but I can do a play. Mm-hmm. All it takes is, like, talented people, and I know, like, tons of talented actors in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. I designed the set. I designed the lighting. Mm-hmm. I wrote it. I directed it. We can just do it. We can get it done, and we can get it in front of people. And the people who came were super entertained. It was like, um, and... And people, you know, of all ages came, and it was cool scene, and we got to do it exactly the way I wanted it because I was like controlling all aspects. But it, but it was a—it's a lot of work. I mean, it's yeah. like you're talking about demon industry, yeah, that yeah. particular show. I mean, people—that was—it was a great experience doing it. Like I had my coworker's teenage daughter came up to me and mm-hmm. was just 
gushing about how much she loved it and how much, you know, and I thought this is great. Like we've, this is a way that we can use theater to, you know, that we're, we're exposing the younger generation to what is so great about theater, which is hard to put in words. You just, you know, you have to experience it. But putting on that show almost killed you. <laughs> and it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, I just, well, the Elephant Man, I actually kept track of my hours. And when you're the costumer, you have to do, there's a lot of driving. you got to drive to different mm-hmm. rental places. Mm-hmm. you got to do laundry. I mean, I had to go to the theater twice every week during the run to pick up the laundry, take it home, spend hours ironing everything, and then drive it all back to the theater. And I was actually tallying the hours with my regular work hours tracking software. And it was, it's, it's over 300 hours at this point. I'm wow. not quite done. <laughs> Yeah, because if you think about it, you are your own business. So, you know, tracking out, I'm sure you have to generate invoices for yourself, right? Yeah, well, I, I actually for, I mean, it's more keeping track of the invoices that, that mm-hmm. I'm, so I can get reimbursed yeah. for rentals and folks like that. Pardon, pardon the, uh, the, the noise. <laughs> no, we have the, uh, because it's so hot, I have the, uh, the, the door of my, Okay, the sound's gone. But yeah, uh, what you were saying, um, I was asking about, do you have to, you generate your own, I mean, you are your own business, so you have to track your bills out and all that stuff. Yeah, well, I don't, th- I mean, I just did it so I could have an idea for myself, mm-hmm. because, I mean, I have to track my own hours for, my regular business is graphic design, and Reg did his Swing and Dash look at that, this <laughs> wall of posters from his old Shows he's been yeah, in, and there's a few that I've designed. Things that you designed, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so I track hours for that because I have certain clients who actually uh-huh. pay me by the hour, yeah. or I, you know, use the number of hours to kind of estimate how much the how much time and how much cost the job is. But for the elephant man, I just did it for my own edification. Oh, so I, I see. Time they spend doing that. There was one show I did for Theater Rhinoceros where I wasn't really like a full costumer. I was, it was very low budget and. It was a show that John Fisher wrote. It was very cute. It was based on his own college years in the 80s. And the funny thing is that we were at school. We were both at UC Berkeley at about the same time. But his the soundtrack to his college years is completely different from mine. You know, that, that actually happens. I mean, I talked to my friends at either NYU or at um, Duke Ellington School of the Arts. I went to an arts high school. Oh, wow. And my memories are sometimes different than theirs. I'm like, oh, my God, it was so traumatic or whatever. I'm like, what are you talking about? I had fun. It was great. <laughs> And just like the songs that he included in the show, I was like, that was so square. <laughs> I was like, yeah, let's listen to ska. But, um, but I tracked the time for that, and it was 90 hours for that, and I wasn't even doing that much, you know. So it's just going to rehearsal. It's very time-consuming. Um, and not that all that time, you know, you don't feel like it's wasted, but it's good to keep it in mind. I mean, and since I, I have my own business doing graphic design, I do tend to lose money when I'm working on shows on that other design business just yeah. because I'm doing things like, oh, I had to spend today, you know, mm-hmm. going to Maskers in Richmond to pull stuff from their warehouse, yeah. and I, so I wasn't working on that other job. So, but what do you get out of theater? <laughs> well, I mean, she sort of I, you know, it's just like, I like the camaraderie of it and just getting to know all these new people and all creative people, and I like helping them helping tell the story and putting the characters together. For the Elephant Man, I, I just, well, I have this new rule that <laughs> I don't do a show until I've read the script and have decided I like I, it. I had to adopt that later on. <laughs> I, you know, when I, when I first came out of school, I was like, yes, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to work. I want to get on stage. And then I read the script and I'm like, oh, okay, that's going to roll. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's kind of, well. Okay, and not, not that has to be like a big role of whatever, but mm-hmm. you have to, you know, there has to be something in it yeah, that makes it worth it. Yeah, 
folks on. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of folks are young. They're young writers or whatever. So it's okay. I mean, if you're going to screw up, screw up big or, you know, just <laughs> do whatever you can, you know, to get it out of your system. But you can't do that all that much. I mean, if you are <laughs> so I've learned, I've told myself, let me read the script first. Then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and if you're the costumer, you're going to watch that show a lot. <laughs> like, you're going to see it like ten times. Yeah. So, and I mean, just sitting in the in the chair. Like, yeah. you're not moving props. You're not, even if, you know, you're not involved in that way. You just have to watch it. So you, you better like it. So I, I became very um, just haunted by the story of Joseph Merrick, who was the real-life elephant man. I did a lot of reading about it. And I just wanted to help tell that story and create the character. And my favorite thing is when I have an idea of how the character is supposed to look, and I, you know, I usually incorporate the way the actor looks into my idea of it. I don't I actually never understand um, theaters where they'll have a costume designer and they have to design stuff before the show is cast because that seems so difficult to me if you haven't met the actor. But when it comes, and this doesn't always happen because, you know, it's low budget and all that stuff. you got to use what you can find, what you can afford. Mm -hmm. But when the character looks like the way I want and this is the character on stage and you're you're presenting that person, Mm -hmm. that's, that's my favorite part of it. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I want to take us. I want to diverge just a little bit because you mentioned you're a graphic artist. My dad was a graphic artist before oh, wow. he retired, and he was a graphic artist. And folks, I mean, this has nothing to do with theater, so you know, if you <laughs> just <laughs> indulge me a little bit because it was it was Father's Day this past Sunday. But I remember being a kid watching my dad, and this was in the '70s. He had his flight table mm-hmm. that he would turn on. He had his little, uh, I think, templates or whatever. Mm-hmm. His uh, pencils, many, many pencils. And he would just and when I meant, when I talk about templates, these are like plastic. Um, is it like a ruby lip? Yeah, well, it's like, like, oh, like calligraphy. It's, it's like uh, uh, like like uh, oh, letter press Yeah, like letters. Like they'll be cut out of A's and B's and C's. Yeah. But they'll be in like reverse A's. I'm, I'm describing it wrong, but they're plastic, and he would draw in the A's and the B's or, or whatever it is. And he would do a lot of um, um, what do they call for um, for a lot of companies. Um, Newsletters, mm-hmm. and because this is days before the intranet, I mean, in a lot of companies now, that's how they tra- that's how they communicate to their employees, like monthly newsletters and all that sort yeah. of stuff. And I guess it's I'm sure it's way different now than it was back in the day, where everything is done by hand. Um, yeah, when I started, actually, I was doing some things by hand. So in fact, mm-hmm. I did a newsletter, and I wonder if we use the same technology where. Um, I would actually cut out the pieces, and you'd run it through a waxer. And, oh, it was sure. cut, and so that's how you, you yeah. stuck the piece. And, in fact, one of the first jobs I did that was still in college was um, a T-shirt for the Strawberry Bluegrass Festival. Mm-hmm. And I did the color separations by hand, and I cut it out of this stuff. It was called Ruby Lip, and it was like this plasticky film. Mm-hmm. And you would actually hand, with like an exacto knife, hand cut out the shape right. of your picture. Right. And you have yeah, that different one. Yeah. yeah, so it's like... Yeah, I mean, I still use exacto knives, but you don't have to do the color separations that way anymore because you can yeah. do them on the computer. And I remember when uh, the Mac came out, you know, yeah, me too. it really <laughs> changed that industry, you know, almost night and day. So uh, I'm yeah, sure and quite a lot of printers and everyone really had to change the way they work or they were going to be out of business. Right, 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 exactly. So, okay, so let's jump back into, and we're back. I wanted to talk about the supernatural thing because it's interesting that Gene has written more than one play involving supernatural elements because he doesn't believe in any of that stuff. 
Except, um, so you write about things that you don't believe in. Wait a minute, she's got a point here. She's got, she's had her well, something. One of your previous guests, Scott Lenson, was on, right? Mm-hmm. So he wrote a play that Gene was in that's called um, Goebbels Live from Hell. It was like one night only Goebbels Live from Hell. I, I think I'm not getting that title exactly right. It's a very long title. And the role of Goebbels, went, so this was done at um, the BOA. Yeah, so the role of Goebbels was, it was initially supposed to be done by Craig Dickerson, who was another East Ennis person, and he had to drop out for some negative reason, health issue or something. Mm -hmm. Then a second guy took it on, and he ended up getting sick and having to be hospitalized. (laughs) (laughs) So Gene was forced, I I don't think I ever saw him, I did the costumes, but I don't think, I never saw him, it was was pretty early on in the process, so I hadn't seen him rehearse yet. Mm -hmm. So Gene, who was one of the producers, we were doing it for this, um, one-act festival, and Jennifer Bailey was directing, ah. um, he had to take on the role, but I had gotten a horrible illness with a terrible fever, and I passed it to Gene right at the time the show was going up. So is it cursed? Is it a supernatural? <laughs> so Gene had to perform this role, which was a massive, included a massive monologue uh-huh. on stage at the Eureka Theater with a 102-degree fever. But it was awesome because it, I was like in this weird dream state and I was like just sweating. Uh, I was supposed to be in hell, right? And so and I was like getting bruised. I would like do falls and I'd forget like how to do a fall. So I had like all these bruises down my leg by the end of the run. And, and uh, yeah, it was just like a haze. And I was just like getting through and like I would be crying and like snot would be coming out of my nose and everything. And then I'd be like, I have to shake somebody's hand. I can't touch that. And uh, it was just, I was like a wreck. But I was like, this is method. What year was this? She was a stage manager, and she did a lot of that, and then she transitioned into writing, mm-hmm. and maybe she did directing, so I'm thinking sure. like in the late aughts. Like yeah, that sounds about right. 2008, I think it was before Lady Susan, though, so that was 2009. So I, okay. That's how I calculate my day. It's like <laughs> Improper Emotions was 2005. <laughs> um the Demon Industry was 2002. I, I think, yeah, I think it might have been 2006 or seven. I have it somewhere at home, anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then I mentioned this guy. So Gene is convinced that this role was cursed. I remember you said that very seriously, and I was surprised. And then I mentioned it to Scott Munson, who was the author of the play, and I and I thought he might be upset, but he said. He was like, wow, do you think I've written it? He was very intrigued. <laughs> I think one of his New York I actors. I love that. I might have written a role that was cursed. Yeah. yeah. I think there was another production in New York where the guy got sick as well. Interesting. The same, the same I think. I think so. Like, like the same play. The same yeah, yeah. And uh, I, is it just because it's so physically draining and emotional? Uh-huh. Or is it that Scott has used yeah. the wrong words <laughs> and invoked an ancient curse wow. through the collection well, the of show, syllables? The show is, is just as explained. The show is a sort of weird fantasy where Josef Goebbels from the Hitler yeah. regime is in, he's in hell and he's yeah. being sort of humorously tortured by these devils. Yeah. And um, so, he, I mean... You could see how that could maybe invite, you know, people. It's stressful. Yeah. I heard Norma on Radio Shows refer to the Scottish play, even though you're not in a theater. Oh, so yeah. Actors have a lot of superstitions. Oh, no. Hey, my stuff is still working and all that stuff. I always wanted to yell at you. No, don't. Don't piss off other actors. I don't want to do that. But it's funny, talking to Scott, it was a wonderful interview that I did with Scott, and I had always wanted to do it, you know, when I got into the podcast, and I was like, Scott, you know, come on the show. And we had a wonderful 
one of the cool things about doing the podcasting thing is you never know what subject matters are going to come up. And we started talking about religion. And I had no oh. idea that we were talking about that because we were talking about Dearest Friend. Like the cigarettes. You guys remember that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they they're called Brecht. Yeah, that's right. Basically, the plot is basically um, Bertolt Brecht, but really the character's name is Frank Fatzer or something like that. And it talks about the life of Bertolt Brecht. Oh, right. This is, and this is a show Scott wrote. Yeah, he wrote. Okay, and this is talks a lot about the, yeah. the, the women that, the women was, that yeah. may have written some of the plays and didn't, not yeah, written, right. but contributed and didn't write right, exactly. it. Well, you know what? Okay, I'm talking about Dearest Frank. I'm really meant to talk about WWJD. Oh, that's yeah. That's okay. what transitioned us into religion because there's a scene at the end of WWJD right. where uh, the protagonist, uh, who is um, Greenspan, mm-hmm. is giving a speech among the uh, the Congress basically about what's, what's going to go on with the budget. And he basically, he basically says, listen, let's just give the money away. Let's just give money to everyone. But he talks about a religious... Uh, conversion that he has, where um, he's he's talking about uh, I guess there's a um, a missionary in feudal Japan and he's about to get executed, but they tell him, listen, if you denounce the name of God, we'll free you. And uh, this is a speech that Scott wrote, and um, the missionary's like, no, I can't do it, I can't do that. And apparently the the cross animates itself and says, no, you can do it. Step on me, whatever, and just do it. I was made for this. And so during the podcast, Scott and I talked about that, and he, you know, he mentions. I think he says he's agnostic, or he really doesn't believe, but still, spirituality means something to him, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I mean, it's like you were talking about how you write about, let's say, the occult or, or what have you, but you don't necessarily believe in it. There, there's a book I, I'm forgetting the name of the author, but it's called Lying Awake. It's a novel, and it's about a nun, and there's a terrific interview, I think it was on City Arts and Lectures that the author gave, where he talked about he had such a terrible struggle writing this book, and part of it was because he was writing about a religious person, and for some reason he'd already decided he wanted to write the story about a nun, mm-hmm. but he wasn't religious himself, and then at some point he realized he didn't doesn't have any evidence that art really helps anyone, but yet he believes in art, and he believes so strongly, and I think everyone that we're all involved with the and, you know, putting 300-plus hours in these things yeah. that we're not really getting paid for. Yeah. We do have a faith, and when he realized that that was the same as a religious person's faith, mm-hmm. suddenly the book became so much easier to write. And it's a great book. I've read it. Yeah, no, that's a, fa- that's a very powerful thing. There is something very spiritual about theater. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the things, like I talked to my dad, and my dad is a singer. Mm-hmm. And I told him, you know, if you stop singing, I don't think you'd be alive. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. He's 70. I mean, he's, he feels very good, but there's something about performing. There's something about being creative that just energizes him. And it energizes me, and I'm sure it's the same thing for you guys as well. Yeah, I, qu- I had a question as a writer, and it was something that I asked Scott, because uh, Lady Susan, I think, was a fantastic play, and it was just it was wonderful. It was based on a Jane Austen book, so I can't right, <laughs> to take all the credit. But, I mean, you, 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 a lot. Yeah, you and Scott have a wonderful talent. It's a talent that I wish that I had of taking a period piece and writing in the same period style, but making it completely different, making mm-hmm. it completely authentic. I mean, I think about, there's a wonderful um, taboo that's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a television show. It's and a season ended with Tom Hardy, and it basically talks about uh, life in 1812 mm-hmm. or 18 whatever in England. And it's so interesting. It's so authentic. And you would think, 
wow, this is so, so far away. 1812, how can I relate to that in 2017? But the writing, it, it makes it so. I mean, it, you, you inject real characters, and I think you do that in Lady, Lady Susan. Okay. Well, I think that it's, it's really hard. I mean, I don't think we would know until if somebody reread that script 50 years from now and still felt like it felt authentic. Like mm-hmm. it, I mean, I think a lot of times as modern people, we, we might think we're really understanding the ways of a, a person from hundreds of years ago, and maybe we're not. But in, in a lot of ways, things are universal. And, but it's, I, I do find it fascinating to think about just the very different mindsets. I did another show um, in 2005 that was about two real-life French artists, and one is Elisabeth Boucher de Bourreau, who was Marie Antoinette's portrait painter, but she was a woman, which was very unusual at the time. And then the French Impressionist, Jacques Morisot, who was, or Morisot, I guess I don't know how to say it. It's kind of breaks some of the rules we learn in school. Um, and in the 18th century, just the idea of women's modesty was strong in a way that's very hard to understand now. Yeah. I think a lot of people just, just the concept that a woman would call any attention to herself and do anything public for some people was just appalling and just completely went against anything that they thought a woman should do. And I, for people now who see, you know, we have a lot of pop stars and people who like oh, sure, Beyonce and all that and reality stars where it's like they're only famous because they've called attention to themselves to try to think of, a, of a living in a world where calling any kind of attention to yourself is just completely disgusting to people. It's interesting. I'm thinking about, there's a book that I read called uh, Africans in America and um, Phyllis Wheatley had written a letter to George Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, the poet, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if you know uh, the story. She basically says, you know, the uh, the Constitution and, uh, and, and um, I think it's the Declaration of Independence where it says all men are created equal. Mm-hmm. And she mentions, well, what about all women or what about all African Americans? I mean, how can you talk about freedom if we're not free? And, you know, Washington basically says, wow, thank you so much for the wonderful letter. <laughs> but thinking about a woman being bold enough to write to yeah. Washington, or Mary Shelley being bold enough to write a horror science fiction novel, you know, incredible. Great. Yeah, actually, I, I believe it was, I don't know, lame that I don't know the name, but I think it was a Japanese woman who wrote what's considered the very first novel. Is that right? Yeah, so, and, and Mary Shelley, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, because yeah. her um, parents were activists, um, she wrote, she invented sci-fi that's considered the first science fiction yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, I don't know if you've delved into Mary Shelley, but, you know, Frankenstein reading about how she constructed it. It was sort of autobiographical because she's really, she's talking about, I think she had a miscarriage at the time, and she was very tra- traumatized by, you know, giving birth to something that's not quite alive and mm-hmm. wanting it to be alive, and how that sort of translated into this scientist that's trying to bring death back to life oh. in Frankenstein. And for, well, the monster. Right. It feels like there's also some sort of comment about she, you know, knew all these romantic poets like Byron and Shelley, and these people who are thinking that they can create life in their pieces, and, um, and she's like, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, she's not, not, as it turns out, she was because it was part of a writing group that she had, yeah. that they had, yeah. and she turned. I think she turned out to be the best out of all. Yeah, yeah. they're still making movies out of her stuff. Yeah. Do you still write? The both of you. You know, I, I actually, I, I don't even necessarily consider myself a writer that much because I'm not someone that does it all the time. I get 
totally distracted by other things, and there's like work and politics and, you know, costuming stuff I'm doing and uh, other art things I'm doing. And so I, there is something I've been working on for a long time that I haven't gone very far with it. And I just, like, need to sit down and do it. But it's, I just am scatterbrained. I'm turning to video games, as you know, Rich. Yeah, well, you are writing. Are you you're writing all these video right games. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's still script. I mean, you know, I was, I was talking to a friend. We were talking about video games and how the evolution mm-hmm. from Pac-Man, or really Pong, yeah. all the way to what we see now. And oh. it's, it's amazing. There's some, you know, like I, was, I look at Mass Effect. I, yeah. I don't even play the games anymore. I basically just watch all the cutscenes or whatever. Yeah, a lot of people do that. And a lot of them are movies. Yeah. And better. Yeah, the movies that I actually see. Great quality stuff. Yeah, but, yeah really looking yeah. sharp. And so the writing, I guess, a script or a dialogue like that, I won't say it's a lot like plays or whatever, but, I mean, do you still have that mindset again when you write a script? I think so, yeah, definitely. Um, Except you have to write, like, 15 different versions for each scene. Oh, that's right, because it's almost like choose your adventure. Right, right. who knows what the player will choose. You want to yeah. have something that sounds natural and... Uh, so you're just sort of improvising in your head a bunch of variations, and then uh, it comes to the poor actor like you uh, who has to look at a spreadsheet. For the listeners, Reg starred in a uh, video game that yeah, Alchemist 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 called 1954 Alchemist is what the German company yep, named it. Yep, yep. So it's not that Reg was the leading man. Yeah. And, of course, when I tell people, it's like, oh, you know, uh, contact G, because I want to do one. I want to do one. But <laughs> as you were telling me, it's very, very tough getting into the video game business and, you know, just. Yeah, it depends on your budget. Um, if, if it's low budget, then I, 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 the game I'm working on right now isn't going to use any voice acting. It's just going to be text. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if I were able to do another game that was low budget and I could just use my friends, then that would be awesome. And I'm going to do that again. But then if. You know, if you get into the next level of things where you've got a big budget and there's a publisher behind you, they want to have people who are... Well, they, they tend to use an agency. In yeah, this through Star's so agency. Yeah, they, yeah. They, only, they want that stamp of, of quality. Mm-hmm. And or, or just that it's their, their, it's their vendor, they're used to it, and they're, they're used to dealing with the paperwork that way and all that. Yeah, yeah. You they don't, don't want to risk hiring a, a freelancer. Sure. Because, I mean, as a, as a uh, game developer, you're sort of a subcontractor to another company. And they're the ones who make the decisions, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the project. I've done I've done it all different ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and um, good, getting good voice acting in games seems to be surprisingly hard. I, it seems like a lot of games come out, and it's like, Meh. I don't know where you found those guys. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of actors feel, oh, this is a snap. I'll just go ahead and do it. And, you know, it's very, very, it, it can be very difficult. I mean, you know, I remember doing several takes, you know, like, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. <laughs> and the director's like, no, can you say it sort of like this or whatever? Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was, it was very, very fun. And Norman and I were talking in another podcast how actors can take their talent and use it in other venues, yeah. like either podcasting or like video games or whatever. Yeah. Do you feel that being, I guess, in theater has sort of helped you yeah. do what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, also just radio drama as well getting the most of it you can out of every word. You know, sometimes the graphics aren't quite matching up with the, the audio, but as long as the acting is great, you know, the radio drama quality is good. Yeah. Uh, that really sells the whole package. And uh, also taking some improv classes, and so I think that also helps come up with variations on the fly, you know. Yeah. Ten different situations. Yeah. One person opening the fridge. And, uh, 
uh, yeah, and, and, and um, just uh, you know, maximizing the conflict. Every scene, every line, there's a little bit of conflict. Getting as much of the character out with every line as you can. You know, these are all things we know about in theater. But mm-hmm. if you were coming to writing video games from another part of video games, you might not, you know, think about that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. I guess a video game is kind of a prime example of a character who has an objective. Yeah, definitely. You got to make that clear to the player. What do you want to do right now? Yeah. That's funny, because I was, I was thinking about Mass Effect. I'm sure you heard about the controversy with Mass Effect Andromeda, mm-hmm. where they sort of, I guess, the producers switched gears, and instead of making it um, dialogue-driven or, or character-driven or, you know, objective-driven, where Shepard has to save the world or the universe mm-hmm. from the Reapers and all that stuff, now right. it's become open source, and characters are open sort of world. open world, right. and they can just sort of look for it, and people just absolutely hate it. <laughs> Because it's like, hey, you know, where's the drama and, you know, what's the storyline? Where's my soap opera? Right, exactly. And there are other, you know, little issues. Here's a question for both of you. What do you enjoy the most? Do you enjoy acting better? Do you enjoy writing better? Do you enjoy producing? Um, What do you enjoy the most? Well, the funny thing is that a a lot of what I feel like I do is just based under some kind of weird compulsion. Like, I don't even know. (laughs) Like, actually, I remember because Craig Souza was in um, the first show we produced that I wrote. And he said something to me. And I, I do remember having some great moments where it was like, oh, this scene is really working and so fun. But I remember him saying, well, this is your dream. You're, you know, but it was just so excruciating in some parts to hear. And you probably had the same feeling. Yeah, the acting? Just, well, no, not the acting. That the acting was bad, but just hearing your own words spoken and you're not sure if it's good. You oh, know? Yeah. Like, you don't, he, even if they're doing a great job, like, you don't necessarily hear it and go, oh, this is my dream. These characters coming to life. You're just thinking, does that make any sense? You know, <laughs> why am I doing this? I don't, so I, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely glad I did it. And I got some some people who really enjoyed it, and that was great. So those are nice memories to look back on. But <laughs> it sounds like you enjoy writing more. I mean, or 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 maybe the costuming. I mean, you know, you've done the costuming for you know several companies. Well, like I said, I like the camaraderie of it. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of. You know, you, you put in your thing, and when it comes... I did an adaptation of A Christmas Carol for the local theater in Maryland that my mom was working with. Mm-hmm. And um, there was one, I, and it mainly was just taking what Dickens wrote and sticking it in, yeah. formatting it, you know. But there was one scene that he, he, he didn't write, a mm-hmm. scene that I felt like needed to be in there for continuity. So, And it's the scene where you're at... Um, young Fred's house, nephew Fred's house, playing the game. So I wrote the game that they played, uh, based on our Victorian games. And I was so pleased because um, they, the way they produced that show was, I, I never would have done it this way. They wanted to get as many people in the town involved as they could, so they, like, triple cast every role. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know how the director rehearsed that. I mean, yeah, I, I think it was double cast. Maybe it wasn't triple. But mm-hmm. um but every so I saw it a couple different times with different casts, and every time that scene came up, it worked. Mm-hmm. So I was very proud of that. That was a nice feeling. Yeah. Oh, and you wrote that little scene. That was the scene. Yeah, that was oh, like nice. one of the Over few hers. things in the script that wasn't Dickens. Yeah. And I was pleased that it worked. So that was nice. Oh, that's awesome. It's so hard to you know you don't always know that that's going to happen. I mean that's. Well, well, I had a big online fight <laughs> with a friend of mine via email. His name's Josh Pollock. He's a He's a musician. He works a lot with Shotgun and, and a lot of different theater groups. He's an actor. Yeah. And um, and he said, you know, you really just can't 
write a script and then just perform it. You have to, like, work through it with actors and, like, workshop it and everything. And I was new to it at that time. I didn't believe him. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think he's right and wrong because I think, didn't Eugene O'Neill write Long Day's Dead Again Tonight kind of in secret? And, and he locked it away in a safe. Yeah, and it wasn't produced until after his death. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's a great play. So, yeah. But, you know, that's someone who's had a lifetime of theater. So um, the first time I remember I wrote something and then had actors read it out loud, and it's like they didn't get what the point of the scene was because I hadn't written it clearly enough. But because I was stuck in my own head, I didn't know that. So Right, yeah, we had, we had talked about that. And actually, uh, Norman and I were talking about, uh, I think we were talking about, I want to say, um, who wrote Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? David uh, Mamet. Mamet. Yeah, Mamet had written something, and he didn't want to workshop it at all. He wanted to just, um, just. Be, I, I think he was worried about the feedback, and he was worried about, and this is the days, this is, you know, currently Chicago. in the in, internet, and he didn't want anything mm-hmm. leaked. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if, you know, basically it was all in his head, and he just wanted to put it out there, and he was totally confident that it was going to work without workshopping it at all. But I agree with you. I think, I, well, I think that if your vision is, cl- I mean, as an actor, if I get a script and the vision is very clear, then, of course, there'll be questions. There's always questions towards the script or whatever, but I'll always continue to play with it. If I understand the vision and the director understands the vision, then I think it'll be fine. I think you workshop it more and more if, let's say, as the writer, you're not clear with what's going on, or maybe you have it in your head, but you just want to hear, are my words, are my, is, is the meaning getting through. Yeah, but it doesn't always come out the way you imagined. Right. You know? oh, sure. And the specific lines, too. Like, you mm-hmm. might you might be hearing that line in your head and the actor's going to take you across some totally different take on it, which can be great, but mm-hmm. it can be, like, jarring, you yeah. know, like a way. Did you Lady Susan? I think Gina Segui um, directed that. Is that right? Oh, Gina Valeria. I'm sorry, Gina Valeria. I'm getting my Gina's mixed up. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. Yeah. Well, and that was actually one where it was really helpful to workshop it because um, you've got actually the poster on your wall for Discover New Voices was the EastEnders production where there were just several new pieces that were given Did readings. Did you workshop Yeah. Wow, okay. And, um, and it was so helpful. So, but anyway, the, so I just met with Arlo over at Bell and Media, and, and the original novel is a letter novel. It's, the entire thing is just letters. So I thought, oh, well, this is perfect for adapting to a play because – you just have to take the letters and, like, trim it and turn it into dialogue. But then it was too stiff because mm-hmm. you just had people stand. It was like a collection of monologues right. rather than there being interaction. And I didn't know that until I, I had actors read it out loud, and they said, you know, this is kind of like it's going to be kind of boring. Like, you need to. And so I reworked it. And then when we did a, a stage reading of it that was more physical than the one that was done um, with EastEnders, Gina actually added a ton of movement. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't just like a stage reading, really, where people were sitting in their chairs. I mean, she put in, like, some blocking and stuff. And mm-hmm. that was when it kind of really came to life. It's like, oh, okay, because she added that. So it was, it was great to have all these people helping. And I, I just remember people, you know, asking actors what they thought about this or that, and I got some really helpful comments. Mm-hmm. It's, it helps to know where the laughs are, too. You've got to do that in front of an audience. Right, right, exactly. What you think is funny may not be, yeah. Well, you can either say, oh, there's a joke that I'm killing for the second line. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just gotta, gotta cut that. Right, right. Um, but what's the thing you like most about it? Because I didn't I took yeah. over that question. You like acting, you like writing, you like, what do you like? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's just when opportunities present themselves. I don't, I don't feel like I can pick and choose that sort of thing, but it's different for each one, I guess. Uh, in the acting, like acting, I notice this has changed over the years, like, 
first, uh, it was interesting just to try different characters and try to fool the audience. Like, I imagined uh, I'm a CIA operative and I have to pretend to be an old man. Can I, pa- can I pass as an old man? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'd like shave bald spots in my head and uh, grow a mustache. Yeah, and, uh, and, I, and everyone was like, oh, you're so good. You can get like a senior discount at the movies or something. Like, that was like our thing. Um, that was the goal uh, to fool the audience. You know, and then, um, and, and now I seem to be into um, being a great utility player who can take on any part. You know, it's like somebody dropped out and we need to have somebody be a uh, Russian director and a groovy Liverpool rock and roll star. I'm like, don't worry, I, 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 got, I got this. And, uh, <laughs> These two characters are in the same play. <laughs> yeah, um, and, uh, uh, I, and uh, I like uh, coming in at the last second and being amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's always fun. Like, <laughs> turn, doing that. It's like you're a closer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, now that, of course, I'm happily married, I no longer need to <laughs> act to meet girls. <laughs> But that was like, that was, you know, some bonus in the early years, the early lonely years. Um, <laughs> and then um, directing, when I'm directing, I'm like, I am at the service of the writer, and I have to make sure that the writer's vision is correctly represented as best it can on stage and give it the most life it can, especially if it's a first production. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't, like, get all wacky with your vision and don't put everything on Mars. Like, just give it the, <laughs> the right. best version possible. Right. And then uh, if I'm a writer, then it's like I want to do something shocking and uh, provocative and super modern and connects directly with the modern audience and is not talky and boring and it's not about the slow dissolution of an American marriage. Which is <laughs> <laughs> like what so many plays are. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating listening to the both of you because, you know, like you, you like your, you know, your vision of, I guess, theater, you, you know, Gene's world is, is <laughs> way off here. Lady And then we have, you know, zombies and, and science fiction. <laughs> well, actually, that was what I thought Gene was. He directed Improper Ambitions, which was the play that I wrote that was about the two French artists. And it was 18th century and 19th century, late mm. 18th, late 19th. And I thought, it was, I thought it was great to have him directing because he brought a little bit of edge to it. So he had everything was really fast-moving, transitions between scenes. He had, like, a curtain that he put in that made, like, a wipe, like a cinematic wipe. Oh, nice. And I think having that that little bit of edginess and that pacing kind of, you know, rescued it from being a little too, like, harpsichordy, Jane Austen. Yeah, like, you know, there was a big fight scene with the impressionist fighting this guy. That, was really, that really happened. It's like a super, <laughs> I mean, black for real in history. Six there people a having a big old fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <That's like laughs> awesome. Wow. I have a question for the two of you. Um, do you think age has changed the way you approach art, the way you approach writing and um, acting and that sort of stuff? In other words, do you write the same way now than you than you did in, I don't know, in your in your twenties or so? Yeah, I don't know. I, I yeah, like I, I feel that more because I'm also a painter, which is uh, that's also was the thing. Wow, I, was, I didn't know that. Yeah, see that the thing is, I think of that as being my main thing. Except actually, I haven't painted in a while because I just got like I don't want to get into the whole hours. thing, but yeah, <laughs> frustrating. But um, I feel like my approach to that has changed more. But the the writing part is kind of. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, in a way, it's like, I, 
just with the, all the different jobs I do, because I've been doing them for longer now, mm-hmm. I've, in some ways it's easier because you have more tools to work with. I, I seem to remember talking to you about this about acting, that you feel like when you're younger you would, you get – you're more nervous and, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and it's you just kind of take it easier when you're older. And it actually, it makes you better at it because you're not as flustered about, about things that you don't know. But at the same time, you know, I don't have, like, the delusions of grandeur that maybe I once had. <laughs> that's true. And, and that's a little bit sad, too, because, yeah. you know, you have, like, these fantasies and you kind of live on those. And when they fade, it's like you're, you're left with, you have more capability, but maybe you, you've lost a little bit of that spark. Yeah. Yeah, so and a lot of folks give up. You know, I have a lot of friends, especially in high school. You know, sure. we all did art, and you know, a lot of them have stopped because they're like, well, you know, I did it when I was young, but now, you know, so whatever. That's, that's sort of sad. You know, it's very yeah. sad when people give up on their dreams or what have you. But also, another thing that I found with, especially creating, I was talking with this with my dad. And I said, you know, I had a lot of creative ideas. I was just teeming with ideas when I was young, and I find something with with work and dating day-to-day stuff and paying bills or whatever, some I, I don't have a lot of creative ideas. Yeah, I worry know. about that. It's like, they do say that. Yeah. Although, like, you know, with painting, I mean, like, I think of, like, Claude Monet's a good example of somebody who was still really innovating when he was quite old. Mm-hmm. But um, it's, do there you, are a lot of... Do you that you want out of Yeah, ideas. yeah, but you all, Gene always has a zillion ideas. Like, you, you like seem to come know. up with more and more ideas, maybe because you're doing it all the time, like coming up with things for these games. Yeah, I got a lot of folders on my desktop full of game ideas. I don't think I'll live long enough to do them all, especially if they take, like one of my games took five, Alcatraz game took five years to make. I'm like, I don't have that many five years <laughs> slots in my life left, you know? Yeah, I, don't wow. know I don't know how many of those I'm going to be yeah. able to do, so i got to figure out a way to do this faster. Yeah. But um, Do you think age has changed um, the way you create? Thank you for asking. I was thinking about that. Uh, you know, at least one thing is good is that uh, I – I've gotten rid of all the autobiographical shit. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, you yeah, yeah, I know someone. Actually, yeah. John Fisher Theodoretto has been doing a bunch of plays that are all about his past, and he's a little bit older than we are, so it's well, it, it can go both ways. It's, it's, perhaps it's a wave, and they'll come back to. But like when I was in, I did playwriting classes at UC Berkeley. I was like, ah, I don't really have much in life experience. I'll make it about myself living in San Jose, and it was like super dumb, and, uh, and you know. And, also, there was like a ghost in it, whatever. But, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, but all the autobiographical stuff and about, you know, oh, this is what we see the world, no, tortured artists, whatever, that's done, that's over. I've gotten it out of the way. Yeah. And now I can do in, system. In, interesting new things. And, um, but what about you, Reg? It's funny, you talk about autobiographical. Isn't every, it, it, I've, I've heard it said that anything that anyone writes, is some, somewhat autobiographical, whether it's direct or indirect. Do yeah, you that's agree that? I, can, I think you can make a good case for it. I mean, yeah. it's, but, but, part of, but part of, you know, what you want to do is explore other people's lives, too. But the approach you take to it is always going to be a little bit stuck in your own head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, that, the piece that you wrote about the, the um, African-Americans in France, oh, I, yeah, I said, yeah, yeah well, I went and, well, it's funny because I had seen um, – Ollie, what's his last name? Ollie Harrington. Ollie Harrington. I had actually just seen a book of his because I've, I've done some, I'm trying to think if that was, no, it was for the Candide poster, I think, uh-huh. that I would, Douglas Morrison Theater did a Candide production, and I was in the library mm-hmm. looking up um, 18th century 
drawings yeah. for inspiration for that. And I just came across this Ollie Harrington cartoon book, and I was like, who is this cartoonist? I haven't ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. And and then he turned out to narrate your play, and but it didn't have a last name in the script, so I was like, oh, who's this Ollie guy? And I was like, oh, it's Ollie Harrington. All but a lot of his comics mm-hmm. are, um, I, and then I went back, I have to find that book again, because I remember he had a number of comics that were done like in the 50s and 60s that, mm-hmm. You could just put them up today, and it would be about today's political situation. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was a political cartoonist. That's exactly right. Yeah, and um, but um, I've since read uh, Chester Himes' book, and then actually just at the Elephant Man, our another actor friend, Matt Weimer, came to see the show. Mm-hmm. And what was he carrying to read on his journey to Alameda from San Francisco? But another Chester Himes book. So ah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's uh, fantastic. I really have to. I've been bad. I, I've got to get back into re- working on that script. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's really hard to find the time. There's just so much, just, I don't know, modern yeah. life, and then everybody's working. Yeah. And also, there's discipline. I mean, I think, uh, and you, I mean, you've actually produced, you know, uh, pieces, so I'm sure you have a technique or a ritual as far as writing. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, as I said, I don't even actually consider myself a real writer. Of course not. Well, I mean, but when I do, but I don't do it all the time, but there's, that's the thing with your, and like, you're the same way, because you're an actor, you're a musician, you're a writer, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you're a singer, there's so many things that are interesting to do. It's like, I, I mean, I kind of wish I only was interested in one thing because then I would maybe be able to work on it and get to be really good at it. But I'm, I'm just, all these things are just so fascinating. Yeah, I think that's, and, you know, you talk about uh, you being a painter and also, and I, I also I wanted to get into, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, Closing into the one, the one hour mark. Uh, well, you know, you guys. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> finish. Yeah, but um, you know, you you do so many different things, so it is. And I know for me, usually if I'm working on another project, it's basically someone else's project. Like someone calls me or emails me or IMs me. Hey, you know, we need someone to do this or that or whatever, and then I jump in, which takes me away from doing yes, the things exactly. I want to do. Yeah. And which I don't mind. I don't mind and working on other people's stuff. Yeah, well, like when Gene was talking about being the director and trying to bring the writer's vision, I mean, I've done that with costuming. And, and when I adapted the Christmas Carol, I was really thinking about Dickens. And, in fact, I, I remember I purposely left in some of the more overtly religious parts, mm-hmm. which I think probably have been cut from some productions just because, you know, you kind of want it to be like a generic holiday thing. Mm-hmm. Because I thought, I think this was important to him, and I'm not – that religious, but I kept it in because I felt like it was his story. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was a Federico Garcia Lorca play that I costumed that EastEnders did, mm-hmm. and he had very specific Don notes about him, the. Right? Yeah, yeah I that. he had very specific notes about the costumes. They were very weird, <laughs> but I thought I am going to do this. Like yeah. I'm going to bring his try to do what he asked for. Right. And the same with the with the Elephant Man. I wanted to. I mean, this is Joseph Merrick. He's a real person, you know, and a lot of the characters in the play are real people, and I wanted to try to be respectful of that. Yeah. Um, but, yes, each of these things you do means you're not getting to your own script, but then, you know, I don't know, maybe my own stories are not that important. Yeah. Can you guys stick around, or do you guys have to go? Absolutely. Keep going. No, <laughs> go. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, we're all going to live to be 100, though, right? That's, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, hey, that'll be great. <laughs> and actually, and that's a, a cool thing about theater is that, there are a lot of older people that work in it. I mean, I, the show I just worked on, um, uh, Michael O'Brien, the lighting designer, is like, he's retired, you know, so he's able to just, I mean, I'm kind of looking forward to that. Like, I could be retired and just, you know, do costuming or whatever. I wouldn't have to worry about 
could take money away from the day job, you know. Yeah, that's, that's to like, be quite honest, yeah, I'm, I'm about two years away from retiring, although oh, I could stick around. Really? Or, yeah, I've been, I've been working in the DA's office for 20 years. Wow. <laughs> oh, so they have some kind of like, do you get like a pension? I, I do. Yeah. And of course, the I longer think my I work, dad the better. Did that too, the better the pension is. But yeah. I'm sure I will be able to create and do all the wonderful things I want to do. If I didn't have to work. Not to say that the job is bad. And actually, the job has been wonderful in allowing me to work. Yeah. I mean, I remember working in the East Coast, and I, you know, you, I had to work after five and overtime and all that sort of stuff. Um, but now, you know, I can sort of, I really can, if I needed to take a, a day off, let's say, to do like um, the voice recordings that I did, you know, five years ago, Thank or, or the other things. You know, the, the boss is very, very cool as far as that's concerned. I'm sure a lot of other offices are as well. Well, that's why I freelance, too. But, I mean, I do take a money hit for freelancing, which is partly my own fault. But yeah. um, but just not to be owned by that corporation is really right. good. And if you're, especially if you're doing arts things, mm-hmm. you kind of, it's great to have a little bit of flexibility. But not everyone can do it. I mean, it's right, exactly. Exactly. Especially with us, the economy is right now with the gentrification. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of friends, theater friends, yeah. who had to leave. Yeah. I mean, I have one friend who... Her family moved to Seattle, Washington, and uh, it was so sad. Her, she mentioned that her daughter said, "Mommy, are we, um, are we, what did she say, gypsies? Are we gypsies because we do her voodoo?" Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so sad. Um, you guys are handling, I guess, what's happening. I mean, what do you think about what's happening in the Bay Area, the gentrification, and just oh, it's worrisome. I mean, we're we're and all that stuff. We we probably would have had to leave, but we're just lucky that we have, you know. <laughs> Yeah, no, you guys are doing yeah, very well. We have well. a good living situation that's I mean, not like entirely new to us, so we're lucky. Yeah, but I mean, like, just watching everything around, I mean, have you had friends, have you had other, like, people around you? Yeah, I know a lot of people who have been, like, they were living in San Francisco and they had to move, and first they had to move to the East Bay, but now the East Bay has become so much more expensive. Yeah, it's getting, I mean, it's, I don't want to say like a, an invasion or like a virus or whatever, but I mean, it's just affecting everything. I mean, um, it's, some say it's progress. I mean, I look like five years ago when I lived, when when I came here to uh, Jacqueline Square, uh, there were a lot of buildings or a lot of businesses that just weren't around. I mean, Barnes & Noble had closed down, and it was just a vacant building. And now it's, um, I forget what it's called now, uh, it's uh, the plant. And, you know, they, they you can bowl there, oh, yeah. you can shoot food mm-hmm. there, and eat yeah. food there or whatever. So many people can say, oh, it's fantastic, but that's if you can afford it. Yeah, and San Francisco becomes just a plaything for the rich. That's going to be a, a shame. Well, and that, that's happened before because there was that first tech bubble that yeah. burst, you know. But I remember a lot of artists were being, yeah, a lot, a lot of places where people had artist lofts got taken over. And mm-hmm. um, and they have had a little bit of city stuff. Like, I, I think the Marsh in Berkeley is there because there was some kind of deal with the city that when they built those condos, they would put some sort of arts thing there. Yeah, I, I don't know if you guys, you guys did come to uh, the Richard Wright performance. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. that was another thing. That was at the Noodle Factory in Oakland. And they had a, a deal where we they wanted to create a theater space, and it would be financed by, they were selling condos there. Mm-hmm. So the problem is nobody was buying them. <laughs> and what happened with that place? Because I remember going to some kind of, you know, tour of it or something. I think it's... Because I saw the Richard Wright show yeah. in the city. Oh, you know, that's right, because we, we did another performance at the, uh, I believe it's the 
Teatro Esperanza. It was uh, it was a floor above the theater line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the old theater line on right. 16th. You did a great yeah. job, Rich. Oh, I, I, I love that show. show. Yeah. 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 That was one of the shows. I feel like when you see these, you know, very tiny, often black box theater. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of shows that I didn't love. Really, you're sort of feel like you're hoping to see one, but sort of like you kind of got to go through a lot of mediocre ones. But then when you see a really good one that you love, it's yeah. just such a great experience. And I think yeah. it's, you know, I mean, there are a lot of big Broadway shows and things that are good, but when you see this intimate show, and if it's, it, the thing is you can see a lot of intimate shows that aren't that good because they don't always have the production budget and all that right, stuff, right. but when you do see one that is good, it's just, it just touches you in a way that I think these big things yeah. can't. And it was a wonderful work of Richard Talavera who uh, put the, uh, the play together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the criticisms that I have with a lot of uh, theater um, productions where y- you get the feeling that when someone, you know, like uh, does um, I don't know, like black box theater. It has to be comedy. It has to be mm-hmm. something light. It has to be something almost Second City TV or Saturday Night Live or something like that. But nothing serious. Nothing that's going to bum people out. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm a very serious guy. I like serious theater. I like, you know, like drama. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'll re- I'll, I remembered um, we were studying um, Greek theater mm-hmm. and how there's tragedy, there's melodrama, there's satire. And we don't see tragedy anymore. I mean, no one, nobody wants to be bummed out or, or what have you. So right. I think it's a... It's a much harder sell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a harder sell, but I think people, you know, they, they're like, don't remind me of, of the bad things, or just entertain me, enlighten me, mm-hmm. or, or what have you. And um, so like just people are putting on some bad tragedies. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're supposed to have the catharsis at the end and exactly. work it out. That, that's exactly right. Now, here's a question, because it's tougher. I mean, we were talking in another episode how ESPN had to let go of a bunch of folks because mm-hmm. uh, everyone is on YouTube, everyone's watching YouTube, mm-hmm. and everyone is consuming media on the Internet. And it's got to be tough for theater as well. I mean, how do you get young folks to come in and see live theater when they can see PewDiePie or, you know, <laughs> some dude, you know, well, or I, cats I guess, yeah. on, on YouTube? I have no problem with that. And there was Hamilton. Yeah, well, right. there you go, yeah. Well, well I mean, actually, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think Hamilton might have kind of saved the theater world for yeah. a little while, which is mm-hmm. great, but um, I, I think it really helps if people go to see it when they're young, which I, and because there isn't that much, I mean, there are, there are some school programs that work with kids at theater, but I didn't know when I was growing up, I mean, I was lucky that my parents did take me to some theater, and I saw, well, I remember seeing um, the original, um, Brighton Beach Memoirs, oh, basically, yeah. with Matthew yeah. Broderick before he was in the movies yeah. and all that. Neil Simon, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that was, you know, that's a fairly light show, right? But I mean, mm-hmm. when I was 14 mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or 16, maybe. It was um, just getting to have just a few of those experiences, you know, I really loved it. But I didn't know that there were all these little theaters mm-hmm. that people could go to and get, you know. And there, there wasn't actually Gold Star and places like that where you can get discount tickets. But um, if you know about it, I mean, I think it's just that people, they just don't think about it. Like, they don't know it's something they can do in all these little theaters. It, it kind of is too bad because you get into this bubble where you're putting on shows like for your friends, kind of, who are also theater people. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. nobody, it's like, it takes, it costs so much just to rent the theater and just to put it together that nobody has that extra money for marketing. Yeah. And buying advertisements is pretty pricey, yeah. but if you don't get that word out, you know, every, I mean, uh, so many of the shows we've done, they'll be very lightly attended until suddenly the fourth week when 
word of mouth has had time to get out, and yeah. people we know realize, oh, we got to see this because it's ending. <laughs> and then the last couple shows sell out, but like you had all kinds of seats to sell for the first week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so getting that word out and doing the marketing was so important, but it's just so hard to find that much money. It's very, very tough. I think it's probably the most difficult thing of theater. I mean, I've been in at least two theater companies that have, that have shut down, mm-hmm. not because of the quality. The quality was very good. Mm-hmm. But you're in competition with so many other theater companies that are like, yeah. come to my show, come to my show. And like, I'll tell someone, hey, you know, why don't you come to my show? No, I'm doing a show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you're all performing for each other. But then there's this whole sort of untapped world of, you know, kids and people who might really enjoy it if they gave it a chance, but they just they think it's weird or whatever. Like, their parents never went. Nobody they know is right. involved in this. And how do you, you know, so it's great when there are these school programs that do it. But, mm-hmm. I, but I had a few of those as a kid, and I still didn't know mm-hmm. until, you know, I got involved with Gene and saw and he was Hello. studying it at, <laughs> at UC Berkeley that there was still this other theater world going on yeah. that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. What do you think of the state of theater? I mean, do you think that the Internet may, you know, there's so many, like, you know, the Ringling Brothers have, has closed down. They're not doing it anymore. And, interesting? And, and the circus has become an archaic thing where, you know, who goes to the circus anymore? Who goes to the zoo anymore? Do you think theater could fall into that fate? Uh, no, no. Like I was saying, I, you know, Hamilton proved that wrong, and it's going to survive for another generation. Uh, you got to go. you got to see it live. Fantastic performers who are just like singing, acting, dancing. They can do everything. It's like superhuman people on stage right in front of you. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're not going to see that. Yeah. Uh, and you're not going to be like, oh my God. And like, theoretically, I can actually meet these people. They're coming out the back door, the stage door. They're real human beings. Right, right. And I can like say hello to them and get their autograph. And, um, uh, it's actually a lot of fun. I think um, in New York, they've done a pretty good job with YouTube. Bringing, they do backstage interviews, and they have oh, um, nice. super fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like this um, accompanist Seth Rudetsky does interviews with people, and you can see him talking with Patty Lapone and all these oh, big wow. stars, and, awesome. and yeah, and it's so I think they've they've done a good job, and they could stand, you know, kind of having things work together, and then mm-hmm. people feel like they get to know these people, and it's because I think a lot of movies are so popular because people feel like they know these actors, they feel like they know the stars, but then. It's some little theater production they've never heard of anywhere, but if they've seen them on YouTube or something, it's, yeah. it's like they're a little star. I remember the first time I went to a um, a production. It was um, it was a musical, The Gospel at Columbus, and uh, it, I was just blown away. It wasn't just it was a production. It wasn't just the show, but it's live. You know, I can see the yeah. people. I can see them singing and all that stuff, and um, that had a big impression on me. And Norman and I talked about how what you know, how we got into theater. Like my story is, you know, I performed in church and I did, you know, like Little Reggie is going to do a, a, a <laughs> sermon. I mean, not a sermon, but he's going to um, recite the Bible or something like that. We do these little church productions or whatever, and I enjoyed the attention. And um, I had a pretty big church, so there was a lot of people. So I never had any stage fright or anything like that. Yeah. But also, when I was in junior high school, it was a very, very rough time. It was right when uh, crack cocaine just took over a lot of big cities. Yeah, yeah. You're and, D.C.? Yeah, in Washington, D.C., and uh, it was really, really bad. And uh, the schools were getting really scary, very, very scary. And, you know, the school would be out saving because they were, I would have been put into another high school, and God knows what would have happened. And there were a lot of other issues going on with my home. Mm-hmm. And theater would really engage me. You know, someone yeah. gave me a script. You're going to study this role. Here are your objectives. Right. This is what beats are all about. This is all you need to know. It's just 
mail this, just mail this. Exactly, and it's 16 years old. It's, it's like a magnet. It, it just, nothing else, because a lot of kids, troubled kids, they're, they're too, you know, their minds are focused on this and that, you know, just surviving. Yeah. So how can we tell the kid to study, focus on math and English or whatever? If there are other little things going on. Yeah, so I know theater really, really saved my life. Um, how did theater, that's one thing I didn't really ask you guys. How did, I know that the radio brought the two of you together, you know, yeah. but how, when did you first get involved in theater? Well, you were, Gene, uh, I'm a couple years older, so I was already graduated when we met, but you were at NUBC working for the drama department. Yeah, totally. I was, yeah. Uh, but, like, very gradually and secretly. Slowly being sucked in. He kept saying, I'm not yeah. majoring in theater, and then he would always sign up for all these theater classes. When you were a kid, were you exposed to theater? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was. Um, I went to, like, a super hippie grade school, and we'd go and uh, have field trips, and there were, you know, theater come in there. I, I, I played uh, a dragon in one thing. I played Snoopy in uh, the Halloween. I played Snoopy, Snoopy, too. Yeah, yeah. I it was, uh, it was also the Halloween thing, yeah. Yeah, it was a good part, huh? And we get at, at the end, like, ooh, come out of the pumpkin I got that part partly as a coin, the result of a coin flip. Because oh, <laughs> nice. I think it was between me and another fan. Working in your favor with the fake ears? Did you have plastic dog ears? No. Oh, that was nice. I, oh, no, I had my own hair in ponytails. Oh, and uh, represent dog Wizard of Oz, I played a flying monkey. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute, you weren't, you, they, they didn't put you on wires, did they? No, no, and also we, we, we weren't strong enough to um, lift up Dorothy, and so we just kind of like held her arm and walked her off stage. <laughs> um, did you frog march her off? We, we tried to be very serious, little you know, <laughs> six-year-old wooden <laughs> monkeys. Uh, the, the, um, I didn't do anything in high school, no, no theater. I did some mock trial, um, you know, acting as a lawyer, mm-hmm. and... Um, I did some theater in high school, but because of Prop 13, all that theater stuff was cut in California schools. So we only were able to do theater when the math teacher, who had a theater background, and he was a really good director, as I found out later, you know, like comparing him with other experiences I had. He was good. Um, Mr. Johnson, he, it, we only got to do a show when he was able to do it just totally on his own time. So they didn't do them every year. Like before I got to that high school, um, they had always done at least one play and one musical, and then throughout my four years of high school, I think they only did, um, they did two or three musicals for the entire four-year period. That was it. They didn't do any screenplays. Mm. Let me ask you this, Rich. Yeah. Does it seem like plausible to you that by doing theater when you're young, you can, you can, you can see, like, I don't have to be the person that everyone is thinking I am, you know, you can, if you, you can see the same actor can play convincingly a villain and a hero, and you realize you don't have to be a villain. Actually, it's the same person can be either one, and you might as well be a, be a good guy. You, you can see that, like, if you, you, can, you can see the different kinds of people you have the option of being. If you can see. Options, um, if you're asking, did I see, are you asking when I, what I saw when I was a young person? Yeah. You know, uh, I, I'm sure, like a lot of uh, young folks, um, and I, I, I guess I wanted to be super. I wanted to be, you know, the, the superhero. Or I wanted to be the leading actor and all that stuff. Of course, I realized uh, much later that it's a lot of fun just, you know, being evil or the villain or whatever. I remember one. There was one production that we did. Actually, uh, there are two stories. Uh, there's 
I had a teacher named Fred Lee, and he was fantastic. He really treated us like adults. He didn't treat us like, okay, now the kids, we're going to listen to that word. He was like, listen, this is how the real life is, and, you know, and I'm going to give you directions. Oh, here's one interesting story. So I'm doing Hamlet. And I'm doing not to be or not to be, not dead, which is very, very ambitious for <laughs> 16 years old. Yeah. And I'm doing it all internally, and whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Yeah. And he says, I want you to stop right there. I want you to go outside, and Duke Ellington, the, the school, is sort of, I, it's, it's, it's uh, very, they did Peggy Sue got married in, in the school. Mm-hmm. They used the, they, 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 they yeah. filmed it there. So it's a really, really spacious. I mean, it reminds me so much of like the Lincoln Memorial or something like yes. that. And at these proscenium, I don't know what you call them, these columns. towers and you know columns and stuff like that. So we're on the second floor. Mm-hmm. He says, "I want you to go outside, go out on the 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 garden, the um, the field, yeah. look out, and do the monologue." To us on the second floor. So, <laughs> and he was, I was like, oh, you're kidding me. I was like, no, I'm dead serious. And if you don't, yeah, I'm going to fail you. Mm-hmm. So I went out and I did it. I'm like yelling at the top of my lungs. Well, it is no good mind to suffer the slings of that. <laughs> and and he, was, he basically he was like, listen, you need to project. You need to get out of your shell and just, you know, boom, just yeah. give it to us. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, sort of um, he was very good at breaking us out of, you know, like you may think you know what theater is, or, you know, you may have something inside inside of your head, but you need to break out of that, you know, we need to understand, you know, what you're doing, and uh, so he did that, and I remember I did a, a role in, um, it was a musical called Working, which is a wonderful musical, I don't know if you know it, it's, it's based on a book by Studs Terkel, and it's basically Oh, just, I know that book. Yeah, exactly, yeah, and it's basically, they did a musical on it, yeah, right. a bunch of interviews with people who are just normal working folks, blue-collar workers, and all that stuff, and I didn't get an acting role. He gave me a, uh, I did a singing role, a migrant worker, in Mayquota Dia Bimber. Okay. And I'm just singing it. And I was so pissed off. I was like, I'm in, I'm in the theater department, for God's sake. I need to, uh, a script. Why can't you give me a script? And he's like, listen, I'm giving, you a, I'm giving you a role, act it, and if you don't want to give it to somebody else. So, so I did it, and Dad was like, wow, that was fantastic. I mean, it was the first time that my dad, who really didn't want me to go into theater at all, mm-hmm. he wanted me to be into music. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know, just theater just compelled me. It was like, wow, I saw you in a way that I've never seen you before. Mm-hmm. And he was he really moved. Nice. So, I don't know if that answered your question. But, yeah, I mean, theater is, I, I think it's when people, and I've heard stories from other people, like I think about Jeff Thompson, who uh, did his, uh, I, I'm looking at uh, Discover New Works, and mm-hmm. he did his piece, he wrote a piece. Uh, Finn Walls, biographical. Finn Walls, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You I was in it. it. <laughs> was that a production? Did he actually? No, it was a stage reading. It was like a semi, I mean, it wasn't. Stage reading with a lot of blocking. Stage reading with a lot of, we had props and yeah. stuff, yeah. But, it was sort of an enhanced But I think about him, it meant so much to him, because it was his life, you know, it was his Whatever. Um, yeah. it, it was autobiographical, but still, it meant a lot to him. Yeah. And to have other people learn a side of him that he hadn't seen. Yeah. Every time I get on the stage, when I play different roles or whatever, people are seeing me in a totally different light. Yeah. And I'm being something different. Um, I'm taking on a role that I've never done before. Yeah. Like I just finished doing um, the chain, mm-hmm. um, which is um, a part of Musical Cafe. Have you guys heard of Musical Cafe? And you're at the Ashby stage, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, they have like that. I mean, they're on their mailing list, but I don't remember getting any yeah. notices about that. So they basically they bring on budding uh, musical writers. To, and they do like 20 minute segments of their musicals. Oh, mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I've submitted something also. And I'm One of the people July. was nominated for a Tony Award just in this last Dave Malloy, who wrote. Is that right? Yeah, and he's actually a friend, my friend Josh Parker already mentioned. And he, but he, I think he did the music for Pluto, which Shotgun did ah. a couple of years ago, and yes. he was nominated for a Tony. Well, that's so, awesome. Yeah. yeah, see, so. And I remember doing the role, and it was really quick. I mean, you know, the, the script was maybe uh, my, at least my part of the script was maybe only five pages or four pages or so. And I had to play someone who uh, is, um, I guess, um, needed a kidney transplant. Mm. And I was on dialysis. Mm. And, you know, as I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, yeah, okay, this is a little weird, but, you know, I'll go ahead and do it. But it meant a lot to the writer. It meant a lot to the, uh, to the person who wrote it, Allison Luterman. And I treated it, you know, with the reverence that you needed to treat it. Sure. And uh, there's a scene where I'm talking to my son, and also my wife uh, is a, um, she's a Jehovah's Witness, so she doesn't want to go because of religious reasons. So you have that conflict there. And I don't have a lot of much script time to, you know, get into. Usually you want a big script and big lots of dialogue so you can jump into your objectives or whatever. And I didn't have a lot of that, but still, mm-hmm. you know, I got into there. And it meant a lot to her, and uh, I, it just reinforced in my mind that when I take on a script, whether it be Shakespeare or, you know, a new writer, uh, it means something mm-hmm. to them. It means something to the production. Mm-hmm. As an actor, I'm sort of carrying, I mean, do you feel as, as writers that you're, it's almost like a baby. You're giving your baby to someone, and you're a little nervous. Are you going to take care of my child? It's like putting your child in daycare. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I do remember. I, I have worked on shows where it's like I didn't feel like the director got what I was going for. You know, it was just like you get this, like, over my dead body. <laughs> and there was a thing where there was a dispute about who was going to be cast in this one role, and I really got to the point where it was like, if you want this person to play, you know, someone else who was a co-producer, if you're insisting that this person be cast, I think that person's completely wrong for this role. And, it, it, you know, there are some things where, well, I mean, it's great to have other people. Sometimes they bring in stuff and you're like, wow, I never thought of that. It's so much better. Mm-hmm. But then when it's something that you think is totally wrong, <laughs> you get to the point where you're like, I will kill myself before this happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You do feel passionate about that. I mean, I did now, did, did that production go well? I mean, or did you? I think it finally did. I mean, there's always been thing where it was, there's always somebody who gets away, where it's like, this person would have been perfect for this role, and there was a oh, conflict. Yeah. So, and the other person that we got was also really cool, just in a different way. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, there have been a couple, there, there's probably no, nothing, like, I don't think there's been broad many people ever get, like, the absolute perfect, every single thing is perfect, and every person that was cast is perfect and all that, but... yeah. But I guess it's the, the vision. I mean, you, your vision has to mesh, mesh with the vision of the director. Or Well, I, and thinking about that, like the, the piece I've been trying to work on now that I haven't been getting very far with is um, about a woman who wrote for the silent films. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting is that her films were super popular in their day, but they're not popular now. Yeah. Whereas, like, this other guy who was also big in the day, his mm-hmm. films are still popular now. Mm-hmm. But I think they're actually are a lot of similarities between those two people, and they both had kind of warped visions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, both of their films are kind of strange, yeah. but, in one, but in one way, that, that particular type of 
Strange Days is still in fashion, whereas the woman who was writing, like, her her fantasies are not as in fashion right now. Yeah. And, but the, but trying to, in some of it, I have actors just, you know, I, I was just going to have them act out, like, the inner titles that are in one of her real films, and those are hard to do without burlesquing them. Yeah. I mean, I'll be really impressed if I can get anybody to read some of those lines and really make it sound like they mean it. Yeah. But one of the films, you know, a couple of them, actually more than one, had Neil Valentino in them. Mm-hmm. And Neil Valentino is somebody that, like, depending on what the film is, he can elicit laughter today. Yeah. Because yeah. we're so cynical and all that. Mm-hmm. But you have to get somebody who is able to get up there and really do it. And Will took it seriously. Like, mm-hmm. at that time, it was it was serious. It wasn't something that he laughed at. Those films were popular. Mm-hmm. But trying to get into that mindset and trying to bring, like you said, like the respect and kind of reverence to someone else's vision when it's something that's totally dated and yeah. kind of laughable, like, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. going to take some, some good acting. Yeah, and it takes a director to sort of bring the person um, to, to, to get that person to understand, you know, um, hey, this is how things were back then, but let's, you know, try to make it palatable, I guess, to today's audience to sort of bridge the gap. So, um, Jean, uh, how do you, do you, have you had uh, work that you've written and, and you've given it to someone and you're a little nervous, like, you know? Yeah, no, I'm just trying to focus it. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I always want the audience to be entertained. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm fine with kind of whatever, um, I'm fine. And you've done works that are kind of collaborative, too, right? We've done a lot of improv with actors yeah, and yeah. kind of brought them into the story. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm no genius, and I can't do everything perfectly, so that was one, I improvised one play. Well, so I don't think it's so much of that as it's like, I, I guess you just wanted that improvisational energy, but the, the funny thing is that he always had a, a direction in mind for the story, but mm-hmm. he wouldn't actually tell them that, mm-hmm. and then just try to see if, if they could come yeah, up they with that same without line yeah, on their own. Yeah. 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 And I would play parts often, like a key, key moment, I'd be like, okay, I'll play this part for this scene, you know, and then you guys react to me, because I knew, like, this has to happen. Oh, this I hear you, I hear you. And then, and then we're like, okay, we got through that milestone. Now, next week, we'll come back and we'll do the next scene. And yeah. And who knows what will happen next. And yeah. That's fun. Um, one question I had asked Scott as writers, um, because we talked about how um, if you're dead, you know, then your, your script is treated like the Bible. You know, you don't touch it and you don't manipulate or whatever. But sometimes living writers, especially if you're there, uh, in on on the set or whatever, have you ever had to say, "Hey, can we change this? Can we change that? Can we, you know, whatever?" Uh, I, I have actually, and a lot of times it's been good. Like I remember there were a couple like dramaturgical things, like someone said, "Oh, this word would be more appropriate for this country." And so it wasn't like a big that. fight. No, it wasn't a big fight, but I remember I had something where uh, this was where the production was, you know, in a different state. So I wasn't there during rehearsals or anything. Mm-hmm. And they had a problem that they wanted to bring in something else, and they didn't talk to me. Oh, so then I went to see the show, and they had actually taken out my ending and substituted the ending from a different script mm-hmm. that somebody else wrote that I don't think they got permission from. Yeah. And, um, and it was horrible. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, wait, this has my name on it, and this ending doesn't make any sense. Oh, what a way to experience it, just w- w- yeah, watching in the theater. Was, you yeah, know, oh, my like, God. And, uh, oh, man. What that was so frustrating. You know, it was, it was a weird situation because um, it, was, it, w- it was like, you know, there was family stuff involved and blah, 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 and I didn't want to make a huge deal of it. And it was also too late. 
So I didn't say that much to him about it at the time. I more tried to concentrate on the good aspects of it. Yeah. But when later they asked if um, they could do the script again, I said no. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I don't know if they ever got this message because it kind of went through an intermediary where you know the middleman asked me and I said, well, I didn't feel respected as an artist really yeah. because yeah. I mean changing the ending of someone's script and going and the thing is that I had told them you know this is I'm perfectly happy to rewrite stuff if you need it, but mm-hmm. they didn't. I guess they didn't have time or whatever. They didn't want to bother. Mm. And, yeah, so it was frustrating because I would rather rewrite it yeah. and, and have it work and, and have them just change it without asking me. Mm. Well, if just hearing what you were saying, it also has to do with the region you're doing the, the play in, I think, because we, we decided to go and check out some Shakespeare in Germany when we happened to be there, and uh, I was on a video game job. And we're like, okay, we know Shakespeare. We should be able to understand it. We should be able to follow this. Oh, they had super titles. That's right, they did. And um, was it the... It was Macbeth. It was, the Scottish play. (laughs) And and then in the middle of it, um, suddenly the place changed, and there was all this weird dialogue. I'm like, I don't remember this in Shakespeare. She's talking about being in a shed. And uh, Lady, Lady M is talking about this childhood memories. And I'm like... Wait a minute, I do know this. It's from a Samuel Beckett play. <laughs> and they had, so they had cut apart Shakespeare they and cut, thrown they in. They cut Lady M's monologue and substituted. Yeah, a, a whole section of a Samuel Beckett play. And apparently in Germany, the director is king and can do whatever they want, even, <laughs> even as the playwright is dead. It's not treated as gold. Oh, wow. That's like now you can really go to town and get your vision and put it on Mars. Wow. Uh, so it was not an improvement, I don't think. And they cut the play like they made it. They cut it down so it was an hour and a half long. So yeah. I think if you if you hadn't seen a more classic production of it, you wouldn't really understand the story. <laughs> they cut yeah. quite a few of the uh, salient plot points. That's crazy. So don't count on you know after your death things being respected. <laughs> <laughs> well, in one of your plays, I guess you can rise from the dead. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Well, it's been fantastic that I have the two of you here. I mean, Thanks for having us. Yeah. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you. I just realized, were we supposed to take our shoes off when we came oh, out? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. PT, I pardon the fact, you know, hopefully you've been too putrid. Not at all. All right. Well, uh, did you guys want to plug anything? Are you guys in anything in the future? Well, my, uh, the Elephant Man was the last thing I did, and it just closed. But I have seen a couple other productions I enjoyed. One was um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, that Theodore Ryder is doing. That's right. Uh, Craig Souza is directing that, I believe. Oh, I no, no, you know what? I'm uh, sorry. He's you know, working on AJ. Jumpfish is, yeah, there's a guy named AJ. I forget his last oh, name. Oh, he's the music. He's the musical director. The music was fantastic. Yeah. They had all these wonderful harmonies and just huge production numbers, yeah. and, you know, and it's like, I mean, it's a bit of a low-budget show, but yeah. costumes are fantastic. Daisy, Daisy Nesky from Chase. EastEnders did some oh. of the costumes, yeah. Daisy, and right Jan right. Brown is another Altadena person, and writer uh-huh. person, is the assistant director, and yeah. worked on, uh, just, yeah, and the, there's some other costumes. There was a whole yeah. costuming team, and I'm sorry, I don't remember Rachel all their names. The producer, he's one of the, pr- he's, one yeah, of the he's, uh, on he's on the board. That's, okay, that's why. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I hadn't seen the movie or, or the Broadway production, so I can't compare it to that, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and then um, yeah. an ideal husband at Town Hall I saw recently. I think I, I had some problems with that script. You know, I don't think it's Oscar Wilde's best script, but I did do think they did a nice production of it. It's mm-hmm. worth seeing. Nice. How about you? Do you have anything lucky up coming up? Uh, we are looking forward to seeing something by We Players, 
we do environmental theater experiences. Like they did Hamlet on Alcatraz, and you'd walk around oh, and you'd wow. see it in the yeah, oh, different that's awesome. And Eddie Macbeth also speaking of it at Fort Point, which is <laughs> fantastic. And so it's coming up is going to be a Midsummer Night of Love, which is like Midsummer Night's Dream in Golden Gate Park, but also like the Summer of Love. Mm-hmm. Well, we're kind of assuming that. I'm guessing. Yeah. It's like the 50th yes. anniversary of like the 50 Summer of Love. Yeah, and so that's right. It yeah. should. And so we'll probably be like walking through the forest, actual forests in different locations yeah. and seeing magical things. And yeah. Maybe some different wires. Who knows? Yeah. The, um, uh, an Octoroon that's coming up at Berkeley Rep. I haven't seen it, but wow. we're, we're planning on seeing it, and it, it seems to be getting a lot of buzz. Yeah, I've seen a lot of advertisements about it. That should be really, really good. Awesome. So. Yeah. So let's let's wrap it up. Thank you so much. And uh, Thank maybe you. We'll, if you. Maybe we'll have you on again. <laughs> Seems like we said everything possible. I know. But we'll, we'll collect some more. Oh, I have more stories. Oh, sure. <laughs> that is it. Uh, thank you so much for the yay. You know, uh, if you're listening to it, then you're already listening to it. But if you haven't, um, you can listen to uh, this on um, Apple uh, Podcast. It's a little purple app that's on your iPhone or iPad. Also, you can listen to it on SoundCloud. Now, please like, subscribe, and uh, let's make you like and don't like about it. A little bit later, I'll be meeting